Morning, New Hope. If we haven't met yet, my name is Gary Post. In fact, that would be true even if we have met. <laughs> Thank you, worship team Bradley and company. Always, uh, always um, exciting to be led into worship. Uh, have our hearts prepared by, uh, by some wonderful worship. Uh, worthy is the Lamb. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father, uh, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather together, to hear your word, to be transformed by your Holy Spirit, to praise you in, in worship songs. And, and Lord, we, uh, we ask, we know that if anything of any eternal value will happen this morning, it will happen because your Holy Spirit is loose among us. You're opening our hearts. Uh, you're empowering me as a, as a messenger this morning. And and Lord, you're teaching us and changing us from the inside out. And we pray that uh, all that will happen uh, as you release your power here among us this morning. And so we pray all these things in the powerful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, um, uh, Mark Kring is, is um, out this morning. Um, and uh, a number of us have been filling in for him. He's uh, going to be back on August 6th. And I should say that... Um, that uh, he, he requested some extended time off this summer, and they, uh, we as elders were, were uh, in, in complete agreement with that. And so uh, he's just taken some extended time off, um, and uh, he'll be refreshed and, and prepared to, to uh, lead us again on, on August 6th. I think next week uh, Michael Glenn will be up here uh, this mor- uh, next week on Sunday morning, and so we'll look forward to that. This morning we're going to be talking about the Apostle Paul and his work in the church in Ephesus. And uh, Gene and I were fortunate enough to be able to travel um, on a 30-day um, trip um, in May and June of this year. And we, we uh, started out in Istanbul and Cappadocia and then uh, in Turkey. And then uh, one of the places we visited wound up in Barcelona. But uh, one of the places we visited was uh, Ephesus. And, uh, and it was uh, moving to be able to walk on the same streets that Paul did, to be in some of the same places that he was in, in Ephesus when God did his work uh, through Paul. And so we're going to be talking a lot about that this morning, and I'm going to be sharing some, uh, some pictures of Ephesus as well. Um, first thing I'd like to show you is the is a map of the Mediterranean. I don't know about you, but I, I, th- I think I must have been uh, asleep in seventh grade geography class uh, because uh, I, I always need a little help uh, when, it, when it comes to picturing where things are. So I'm, uh, we have a map here. Uh, this is, the, in general, the Mediterranean. You see where Greece is, where Crete is to the south, and then um, off to the left, just above the title uh, Greece, you see, the, you see Corinth. A month ago when I was uh, speaking up here, we talked about Corinth and Paul's work in Corinth. And, and if you go uh, just across the bay there, across the, uh, where it says Aegean Sea, almost straight across from Athens, you see where Ephesus is. And so uh, when, when Paul left, on, and those uh, lines are all his missionary journeys, many of you will have a similar map in the back of your Bibles, which is really handy. This is what, uh, this is what these nations look like in Paul's day under the Roman Empire. So Paul actually traveled overland from, from uh, Corinth 
in order to get to uh, Ephesus, um, which is now in modern-day Turkey. Yeah, you may not have known that. Corinth, of course, is in Greece. Ephesus is in, is in uh, Turkey on the western edge of what is now uh, known as Anatolia, that region called Anatolia in, uh, in Turkey. Uh, and you notice uh, Galatia and Pontus and Cappadocia. We started our trip uh, with a pre-trip in Cappadocia. Flew from Istanbul to Cappadocia. Saw some of the underground churches that Christians actually hid out in during the second and third centuries uh, when they were uh, being persecuted. And uh, they, they established entire cities underground in, in Cappadocia. Uh, but we're going to be talking about Ephesus today. And Ephesus was... Um, uh, it dates, dates back really to about the 11th century B.C. And there were a, a, a succession of uh, rulers and kings uh, during, that, uh, during that period of time up until about 129 B.C. There was a, a, a king called uh, Attalus. His name was Attalus. And uh, he was a king of Pergamon. He, he left uh, Ephesus to the Roman Empire in his will. I thought that, that was curious. As he passed away, he left it to the Roman Empire in his, in his will. And under Roman rule, it grew very quickly uh, because the, the Romans were good at infrastructure. And so they built, uh, some have estimated, as many as 53,000 miles of, of roads throughout their, their empire, as well as aqueducts and, and other public kinds of infrastructure that really uh, helped for the spread of the gospel. So... Uh, it became a vibrant uh, port city, about 250,000 people. It was the seat of Roman government in what was then Asia Minor. And it was located on a number of different trade routes, both sea routes and, and land routes. So like Corinth, there was a, a, a constant coming and going of people traveling through Ephesus for a lot of different reasons. And uh, it made Ephesus... a Ephesus is a strategic location for the spread of the gospel, and, and, and God knew that and directed Paul there to establish a Christian church, and thus his desire to, to minister there. Ancient Ephesus is, is now located on what is the western edge of, of Turkey, as I said. And I, I want to show you some of the, uh, some of the pictures of, um, of Ephesus. First of all, this is an artist's conception of what Ephesus might have looked like in the time of Paul. And you see off to the right there, in the center of the screen, off to the right, that's the Temple of Artemis. At the time, it was one of the seven wonders of the world, seven wonders of the ancient world. We'll see another picture of that soon. This is actually Curates Street. This is an artist's re recreation of what Curates Street, one of the, uh, the main streets in Ephesus, might have looked like in the time of Paul. And now we'll see it again as it looks like now. This is what the ruins look like today. So that's, that's what's left of Ephesus. And keep in mind, that's after 100 years of archaeological work. Uh, Ephesus was buried under, under 20 feet of, of silt and, and uh, dirt. This is the Temple of Artemis, uh, or an artist's conception of that Temple of Artemis, what it must have looked like. It was, it was huge. Ephesus was dedicated to the worship of Artemis. We'll read a lot more about her. Uh, she was a goddess. And, um, and that's, a, that's actually a statue of Artemis from the Louvre in, in uh, Paris. Uh, you can see it there. Um, and then I have some, some pictures of some of the ruins of, of uh, Ephesus as well. Uh, after 2,000 years, and again, they had to excavate all this soil away 
over the past hundred years. That's a theater. There were several in Ephesus, but that's where they would have uh, conducted plays and civic events and so on. That's one of a number of theaters that there were in Ephesus at the time. You can see some of the, the columns. Uh, every building had columns and, uh, and terraces, typically. Some of the artwork, it was very ornate, uh, some of the artwork that uh, decorated the buildings in Ephesus at the time. They reconstructed some of that as part of the archaeological work. That actually is a Christian uh, symbol that may have uh, decorated uh, part of the Christian church. It's a symbol of an angel, and uh, there's, more, there's more to it than that. That's uh, an example of a house. You see how it's kind of a terraced? Many of the uh, houses of wealthy people uh, had various levels. You see there the Roman road. The Romans were good at infrastructure. That road is over 2,000 years old. And, and we're still walking on it today. Now it's kind of uneven, uh, but that's what it looks like today. Uh, again, uh, the header from a, a temple. There were about 50 temples in Ephesus at the time. Somebody asked me between services, uh, what were all those people doing there? Well, they're all part of tour groups like, like we were. That in, is interesting. Let's stop there a moment. Um, look at the mosaic on the, on the floor there. Now that is, a, that is a, a home of a wealthy person. You remember when we talked about Corinth, I said many times they would gather on those uh, courtyards, those mosaic courtyards. That's a, that's a mosaic there that was, uh, that's over 2,000 years old. And, and people would gather uh, to hear and, and to hear Paul teach. When he'd go to, to the, the houses of uh, wealthy people, they would gather on that mosaic floor and sit there and, and listen to sermons by Paul in some of those wealthy homes. Again, that Roman road, all marble slabs. It, it can be kind of uneven to walk on, especially when it's wet, but um, it's still there uh, 2,000 years later. Again, more ornate uh, carvings, uh, columns. Oh, look at, uh, who are those young explorers? I don't know how that got in there. Behind us, you see the, the Library of Celsus. The Library of Celsus was probably built just after, after Paul was there. He was there from 52 to 55 A.D. This was probably built about 110 uh, A.D., or started anyway. This was the third largest library in the ancient world. There are 12,000 scrolls in there at one time. This is part of the uh, marketplace, the Agora, they called it. Um, <clears throat> those are all stores and shops along the way where uh, people would come every day uh, to get what they needed and there was buying and selling that took place there. Now this is the, you'll read further on in, in Acts, in Acts 19, there was a riot. Uh, people gathered, some of the 250,000 people gathered, they were stirred up by uh, a silversmith uh, to riot against uh, Paul. This was the, the, uh, the theater, they called it, it looks like a Colosseum. It seated as many as 20,000 people in Paul's day. This was the theater uh, where the mayor finally came forward and said, they, they said, great is uh, Artemis, the god of the Ephesians. And, and they were rioting, and, uh, and the, the mayor of the town finally had to come and say, listen, if you continue to riot, that will come to the attention of the Romans, and, uh, and we'll all be in trouble. And so they stopped. You can read about it later in, in Acts 19. Hopefully that gives you, those visuals give you some idea of what uh, Ephesus looked like then and, and what it looks like today. Uh, over the centuries since Paul was there, um, much of Ephesus was destroyed by, uh, by earthquakes, by um, 
by other rulers who came in after the Roman Empire, uh, the Goths and, and, and others. Uh, but uh, for the past hundred years, they've been uh, restoring that, exploring, excavating, and, and restoring that. Um, <clears throat> Ephesus was uh, known for the Temple of Artemis. I mentioned that was one of the seven wonders of the, the ancient world at the time. And uh, Artemis was the Greek goddess that was thought to have power over, over hunting, wild animals, chastity, childbirth, and the wilderness. I don't know how that hodgepodge of, of uh, responsibilities fit together, but all these imaginary gods that uh, the, the Greeks and the Romans had, uh, she was assigned uh, those things. And so the bigger the temple that you built, the, the more you were likely to, um, to receive the favor of that particular god. And that was what was behind so much of that, so much empty superstition. There were about 50 gods and goddesses that were worshipped in Ephesus at the time, and they all had their own temples. But let's, uh, let's read a little bit about Paul's visit to Ephesus in, in Acts 19. I'm just going to read the first couple of verses, of, uh, starting at verse 8, actually. Uh, the parts before and after the passage we're reading are, are important. They're interesting, but they're not on point for what we're talking about here. So I'm going to start with verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took his disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Well, as you may remember, uh, Paul's strategy was always to begin in the synagogues because he had a common framework of understanding with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles uh, who were there. He would explain to Jews and those Gentiles that, um, about Jesus the Messiah, how he was in fact the fulfillment of all those Old Testament prophecies uh, about the coming Messiah. Archaeologists uh, have been excavating Ephesus for over a hundred years. They've not yet located the synagogue, but that's because they started in those areas where uh, the wealthier people lived. And, and so that's, what, that's a lot of what you saw there. Uh, the synagogue and the areas where the, the Jewish population lived are probably still buried there and, and will be found, certainly. But they had, they've certainly identified some inscriptions uh, and some symbols that indicate the presence of not only Christians, but a significant Jewish population in Ephesus. And, and in fact, the Jewish historian Josephus uh, confirmed that uh, the, the Jews in Ephesus were favored, actually, by the Romans and, and had been awarded Roman citizenship there in Ephesus and granted exemptions from some of the pagan duties that would have interfered with their Sabbath-keeping obligations. So that we know that they were there. And, uh, and that they held prominent positions in the, in the community. But after, after a few months, we see that, as usual, Paul ran into opposition in the synagogue uh, among the Jews. And, and like Jesus, Paul knew when to walk away. Paul knew when to walk away. When hard-hearted opponents uh, in the synagogue began to, to blaspheme Jesus as Messiah, to speak ill of the way, as it was called, among Christians, uh, Paul took his disciples, some Jews and some Gentiles, uh, and, and left for the lecture hall of Tyrannus. <clears throat> uh, Tyrannus 
uh, was a Greek who actually ran a, a school for boys. And he conducted his classes from, uh, from uh, early morning until 11 a.m. and then after four again. That was because uh, that was the time of the, the, uh, the heat of the day. <clears throat> In the middle of the day was the heat of the day. Many of the Greeks at that time would uh, take a siesta and, and do other things and, uh, and have something to eat. And so uh, they avoided the heat of the day in the school. But that's when Paul could use the, uh, the Hall of Tyrannus to go in and, and teach. And so um, he probably, um, we know that Paul worked to support himself. He was a tent maker and he, he did leather work. And so we know that he was prob probably working in the early morning hours to support himself, making tents, doing his leather work. He would come at 11 o'clock and begin uh, teaching his disciples and also the stream of new converts that kept coming. People were constantly coming in and out, especially as, as uh, Paul's fame and the, and the uh, news about Jesus the Messiah and uh, the Christian church uh, began to be spread all over uh, Asia Minor at the time. Uh, people would come from all over the region uh, to hear Paul speak. And so he met with them between 11 and, uh, and four each day and, and then would probably go back to, to do his, his work again. Historian John Pollock describes the, the effect of those two years of Paul's ministry. He says, by visitors returning from Ephesus or by teams of converts going out at Paul's instigation, the gospel spread to Smyrna, the royal city of Pergamum perched on its high rock, and to Thyatira, the birthplace of Philippian Lydia, if you remember her. From each new center it reached out into the surrounding countryside. Luke summed it up well when he said that in the course of two years, all the people who lived in the province of Asia, both Jews and Gentiles, heard the word of the Lord. The gospel had penetrated that whole region of the world at that time. You notice how, Paul, how God positioned Paul strategically in Ephesus, just as he did in Corinth, uh, to, spread the, to, to maximize the spread of the gospel in, in that moment. And then God also uh, demonstrated his power through Paul. Let's see how that uh, looks in, in verses 11 through 17. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin Actually, uh, handkerchiefs is too polite a word. These were probably sweat rags that had touched his skin. Uh, Paul worked hard with his hands in the heat of the day, and, uh, and he sweat a lot, probably. And, and so these were, were sweat rags and, and other kinds of belts that he, he wore uh, doing his physical labor. Uh, those handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? That had to be a scary moment. And the man in whom the evil spirit in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, 
and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. We'll stop right there. Ephesus was, uh, if Corinth was headquarters for every brand of sexual deviancy, and it was, Ephesus probably had much of that, but Ephesus also was distinguished by the fact that it was headquarters for uh, occult practices and engagement with demonic activity. It was, it was a spiritually dark, dark place. This is how John Pollock describes it in, the, in his book, The Life of Paul. He says, if, if Corinth was sex-obsessed, Ephesus, as Shakespeare said, was full of dark working sorcerers that changed the mind. Magicians treasured scrolls of curses and spells and knew the grisly formulas to make them potent. It's a shame even to speak of the things that they do in secret, Paul told his converts. They sold abracadabras written on strips of papyrus for wear next to the skin to cure aches and pains. Let no one deceive you with empty words, urged Paul. It was famous for the study of the occult by those who boasted that they were in league with, cons uh, with cosmic principalities and powers, the superhuman forces of darkness, unquote. This is a good place uh, to make note of the fact that Satan and his demons are real entities. This is not Harry Potter stuff. They, they are real entities, and Jesus uh, spoke of them as, as well. They're, they are engaged in a cosmic battle for the hearts and minds of people. Satan wants to destroy us. Je Jesus said that, didn't he? He said that Satan comes to kill and destroy. That's his M.O. That's what he does. And, uh, and, and he would destroy us. Uh, but God is, uh, God wants to save us now and, and for eternity. Praise God. And that's why the Bible warns us against involvement with occult practices like spiritism, mediums, horoscopes, tarot cards, um, Ouija boards, witchcraft, uh, anything else. People are fascinated by dark magic, but uh, it, is, it opens us up to dangerous demonic activity uh, when we're involved with that. So we need to stay away. Having said that, we don't need to fear Satan or, or his demons. The Apostle Paul told us in 1 John 4, 4, that we do not need to fear them because, quote, uh, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, we have the Holy Spirit of God uh, living in us, and God is far more powerful than Satan or, or any of his demons. And that's why the Apostle Paul could uh, conclude for the Christians in Thessalonica, he, he said, but the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you and he will protect you from the evil one. But God has his angels too. The point of this message is not about angels and demons, uh, but it, it's important to mention that God has his angels too. Demons are fallen angels and uh, uh, God's uh, angels are, are servants. And this is what, uh, it's not in your notes, but if you want to, to jot a reference, it's uh, Hebrews 1.14. Uh, tells us that, uh, speaking of angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Who, are, who is that? Who's going to inherit salvation? Yeah, you and me, right? You and me. So, uh, again, 
angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. Uh, we have uh, angels all around us. Uh, uh, the spirit supernatural activity is occurring on another plane that we can't see. That, that makes it no less real. Uh, that cosmic battle is taking place all the time. And uh, I think when we get to heaven, uh, we'll have the opportunity to know all the times that God and his angels have stepped in to protect us in, in different ways uh, when we were threatened and, and God uh, saved us. We, we won't know until we, we get there. We take it for granted. Um, but God's angels have protected us many times. And then I think we'll have an opportunity to see that when we get to heaven. Uh, notice on... Uh, Oh, and I wanted to mention to you, too, if you're interested more in um, knowing more about Satan, demons, angels, and so on, I've included a reference from Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum uh, in the notes. You'll see a website there. Uh, it, he has uh, some wonderful manuscripts, uh, very detailed, on a number of different theological topics. You can access those for free at that website. And uh, he has one on demonology, for example, on Satanology, on angelology, if you're, if you're interested in knowing more about that. But in, in verse 11, we see that God was doing extraordinary miracles using Paul as his agent. Miracles, folks, opened the door for people to believe. It jarred them. It was something they were unused to seeing. It was supernatural. So um, it opened the door for people to believe, and it, and it confirmed uh, that God was indeed working through the Apostle Paul. It, it's worth noting that it's always God's power. This wasn't Paul's power. God gave him that power. It's always God's power to heal, to confront Satan, to overcome sin, to change circumstances in, in life. But he uses us as his agents. He used Paul, and he will use us as his agents to deliver his power into situations to accomplish his purposes. That still happens today. In Paul's case, God even used those handkerchiefs or, or sweat rags to, or, and other articles of clothing that had touched Paul in, in order to, uh, to drive out uh, demons at the time, to, uh, to bring healing to people, even though Paul couldn't be there. If you think about it, he was probably, there were occasions when he was busy trying to make a living. And uh, as his... Uh, as his fame spread throughout uh, Ephesus there, and, uh, and the, the word about Jesus spread around Ephesus, uh, people would come from, from all over. This was a big city. They would come from all over and say, hey, could you, could you come over here and heal this person or, or uh, cast this, this demon out over here? And uh, there wasn't enough of Paul to go around. So he would send one of his, one of his associates, another Christian, along with with this, uh, with this handkerchief or this sweat rag or this belt or apron or, or whatever it was, he would send that, and that would be effective. If you think about it, just as Jesus uh, said, remember he was walking through the crowd and, and a woman uh, grabbed his, his clothing and he said, who touched me? Well, the same thing is true here. She was healed because she touched the clothing of Jesus. Well, in this case, God gave Paul the power that uh, his clothing and, and, and other, other things uh, were also effective. In, uh, in bringing healing and uh, casting out demons at the time. Uh, just a side note on that. We don't, we don't really know, but many of the scholars uh, conclude that uh, demonic activity was much heavier. Uh, you know, Jesus cast out a number of demons as well. And we don't see that as much anymore. Um, and and uh, again, in Paul's day, 
and, and some speculate that uh, that's because Satan was in, in uh, furiously trying to counter the effects of the gospel. But Jesus had already won that victory. Satan's days were numbered because he overcame uh, sin and death and, and Satan on the cross. Uh, Paul's secret was that he allowed Jesus' power to, to flow through him. And, and we can do that too. That wasn't just Paul. Uh, this is one of my favorite verses, and I think it expresses uh, what he would say about why he, was, uh, why he was so effective in God's power. He said, I've been crucified with Christ. In other words, the old Paul, the old Gary, the old person that we were is, is gone. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And that means in every circumstance, we're, we're asking Jesus for his power. We're asking Jesus for his character to come out in our lives. That's, that's living by faith in the Son of God. That's what Paul was doing. That's what we can do as well. If we've trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior, he lives in us. And, and he wants to live his life through us in all of its power. We need to pray that he will do that continually in every situation we find ourselves in. And then look for opportunities. Uh, we don't uh, have a network of relationships by coincidence. God puts us in a network of relationships by design. Look for opportunities uh, to be the hands and feet of Jesus in that situation. To speak a word of encouragement. To pray with someone uh, for their healing perhaps. Or, or other good works as, uh, as God would direct us. Well, we see the, uh, the unfortunate seven sons of Sceva uh, take a beating here. Uh, because Ephesus was a center for magical and occult practices, it attracted a number of itinerant Jewish exorcists who had a reputation among the Gentiles for being more or less effective in, in being able to cast out demons, exorcism in other words. I wasn't aware of this, but apparently it was, it was relatively common uh, that these uh, groups of Jewish exorcists would go around and, uh, and cater to the Gentiles in trying to cast out uh, demons. And, and Sceva and his sons were among them. They would use magical incantations and, and formulas. And usually they would cobble together a number of names that they thought contained spiritual power. And, uh, and they would use those names in a, in a mantra, in an incantation uh, that uh, was supposed to uh, cast out a, a demon. When they used Jesus' name as a gimmick to cast out the evil spirit, of course, they failed miserably. They were beaten badly. They were publicly humiliated. They had to, to run out of the house uh, naked and, uh, and publicly shamed. The, the difference was when Paul used the name of Jesus and when the sons of Sceva used the name of Jesus, the difference was the latter had no relationship with Jesus, you see? Therefore, they, they lacked the power. Jesus said, or excuse me, the demon said, Jesus I know and Paul I, I, I recognize, or another version says, Paul I'm acquainted with, but who are you? I don't know you. Uh, notice here that any power, any power, that God chooses to demonstrate in us and through us in the lives of, of other people will always be in proportion to the closeness of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Our power comes from Jesus Christ. Here God was sending a message 
to all the counterfeits and, and charlatans. Uh, Luke tells us this, this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them, and the name of Jesus was extolled. To extol means to praise enthusiastically, to be in awe of. People were in awe of the name of Jesus because of what was happening in Ephesus at the time. It was all over the region. But what effect did the, the, the Sceva debacle, I'll call it, what, what did that have on the, on the church? Well, uh, what, what we see is uh, that believers uh, were motivated to, to part with their past. Let's look at uh, verses 18 through 20. Verse 18. Uh, also, many of those who are now believers, these weren't people of the world, these were now believers. Uh, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and, and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Notice that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail, and prevail mightily. It was God's word that were, that's where the power was. So God exposed the, uh, the, the pathetic magic of Sceva as powerless. And uh, as a consequence, new believers came forward to renounce the practice of magic arts and, and burn their books of incantations and, and formulas. There were some in the church at the time who evidently had one foot in their old life and, and one foot in their new life. And, uh, and the incident with the sons of Sceva made it clear that they needed to jettison uh, their past. But uh, the, the, uh, the books that were burned, it mentions in the scripture here, uh, 50,000 pieces of silver. That the silver was probably the, uh, the Roman drachma. And that would have been 50,000 Roman drachma, which would have been equivalent in our dollars today to $6 million. So that was an expensive bonfire that they were burning in, in Ephesus. <clears throat> those new Christians recognized that they needed to leave behind parts of their sinful past in, in order to embrace the new life that God had for them as the Holy Spirit worked in them to bring out Christ's character. In, in his later letter to the young Ephesian church, uh, Paul urged them to jettison those behaviors, to throw them off, and, and uh, those things that were holding them back, and, and to put on the character of Christ. The imagery is that uh, you're taking off this old, dirty suit of clothes and you're pulling on this, this new, uh, shining, uh, wonderful suit of clothes that Jesus Christ offers us. We're, we're clothed in his righteousness. So we're putting on that suit of clothes. Paul puts it this way. He says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Question for you. What attitudes and practices from your old life, from my old life, are we hanging on to that keep us from fully putting on the character of Christ and becoming the people that God desires us to be? What do you need to put on the burn pile in order to embrace the new life that God has for you and for me? 
Are you, for example, engaging with your mind with things that move you toward God or away from God? Are there habits and behaviors that are incompatible with your new life in Christ, just as there were for the Ephesian believers? Are you dancing around the edges of a pet temptation, nursing an addiction, excusing habitual anger or, or other behavioral sinful issues? Are you harboring a sinful desire? Are, are, you, are you nursing a sinful relationship? They all need to burn. They all need to burn. If we're going to experience all that God has for us. I thought it was interesting. I'm, I'm told that uh, Americans uh, watch an average of three hours of television a day. Uh, let me ask you. Uh, do you find yourself having time for television but no time to spend 20 or 30 minutes a day in a quiet time with God in His Word and, and in prayer? If not, where, where are our priorities? Here's the thing. Satan doesn't have to destroy us. He just has to distract us, right? Satan doesn't have to destroy us. He just has to distract us from pursuing God in order to accomplish his purposes. Jesus was clear that preoccupation with the things of this world keeps us from growing and becoming more effective in the way that we represent God in this world. In the parable of the sower in, in Mark 4, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the passages that, that uh, haunts me, he talks about the, the, the person he describes as thorny soil. He says, they are those who hear the word, but then three things interfere. They hear the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Those things, three things, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, in other words, materialism, uh, the one who has the most toys when he dies wins, you know, that, that mentality, and the desires for other things, enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Uh, our distractions can crowd out the opportunity for God to do his work of transformation in, in our lives. Another question for you. Notice in the word, Notice in verse 20 that the word of the Lord continued to increase mightily in Paul's day. The power is in God's word. As the Holy Spirit used it to change the Ephesians and it, as he uses it in our lives to change our lives, the, the word of God is quick and powerful. It's transformative. It's not an ordinary book. It's not an owner's manual. Reading the Bible changes us from the inside out. The Holy Spirit does that. Are we allowing lesser things to crowd out the transformational power of God's word in our lives? And then the question of, are we saved once or are we saved every day? In, uh, in Western 21st century culture, we tend to think of salvation as a, as a one and done as a, a one-time transaction <clears throat> where we, we accept God's premise that by trusting Jesus as our Savior, we can experience God's forgiveness for our sins, past, present, and future, and look forward to spending eternity with God in heaven when we die. 
And that is all true, my friends. Praise God, that is all true. We read verses like this, Romans 5, 8, and 9, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified or declared not guilty, since we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And you know, we read that verse and we feel a certain sense of relief. We may feel like we've checked off the box to secure our eternal destiny. And now we can relax in kind of a holding pattern until the bus for heaven shows up. But Paul in the, in the first century Ephesians would have seen things differently from that, that ancient first century perspective. While we're tempted to see a, a one-time transaction with God, they would have seen following Christ as an ongoing commitment to the transformation of their lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. And what we need to understand is that salvation is both a one-time decision and also an ongoing process of a lifetime. God has saved us once for all time, and he continues to save and transform us daily through the power of the Holy Spirit using the tool of God's word. In a later letter to the Ephesian church, uh, Paul, Paul explained it this way. He said, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. And, and that's where we usually end it. But let me also read verse 10, because it's the other shoe. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You, do you see both sides of salvation? It is a one-time, and at the same time, it's a lifelong commitment. First, the transaction, receiving God's gift of, of uh, forgiveness and eternal life by faith, but it doesn't stop there. The transformation part is all about how God uh, created the new life in us for the purpose of good works. That is fruitfulness, remember Mark 4? Fruitfulness, fruitfulness that will bring glory to God. And here's another example. Uh, Titus uh, 2, 11 and 12, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's the first part, the one time. And then the second part is this, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That's ongoing salvation. And not that uh, we merit salvation through what we do, but God calls us to be holy. He said, be holy for, just as I'm holy. He said, uh, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. In almost every epistle, Paul says, put off this old behavior uh, that uh, you used to do and put on these new behaviors. This is what the life in Christ looks like when it's lived out by human beings. So the first part is the grace of God, bringing salvation through Jesus Christ. The second part, you notice the word in uh, Titus here is, is trains or transforms. It trains us to shed our old sinful lives and, and to live in a way that pleases God. So salvation is both a one-time transaction and a, and a lifelong transformation, otherwise known as sanctification. God is, is making us holy over a lifetime, folks. Pastor John Piper describes uh, how God continues to save us 
through sanctification in, in this way. He says, so I conclude that Christians are being saved now by God and that he's sanctifying us as the necessary confirmation of our election through lives of sanctification. God is doing that saving work in two senses. First of all, he's keeping us back from soul-destroying patterns of sin. As it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that no test, no temptation will overcome us to destroy us. Or Jude 24, he will keep you from stumbling and present you blameless to God. And, and second, the other sense in which God is doing that sanctifying work, that saving work, is by causing us positively to walk in paths of righteousness. As Hebrews 13, 21 says, he is working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. God is always at work in us to transform us. So our, our salvation is accomplished by God's grace and, and power, but folks, it requires our participation. It's not passive. Um, Dallas Willard in his book um, that I included in your notes there, the title, um, his book, Renovation of the Heart, he, and, and other works, he makes the point that that uh, grace is not opposed to, uh, grace is opposed to earning. We can't earn our way. Grace is opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is not opposed to effort. There is supposed to be effort. And the, the, the Apostle Paul speaks to our responsibility to be transformed in his letter to the Romans, where he says uh, in uh, Romans 12:2. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Another version says, do not be forced into the world's mold. Don't let the world force you into its mold. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test, that is, uh, to discern, to uh, figure out, to understand. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. You see, renewing our minds will help us to understand uh, God's perspective on life's decisions. How do we go about renewing our minds? Well, we do it the same way that Paul told young, past, young uh, Pastor Timothy uh, to renew his mind. He said, but as for you, continue in what you've learned and become convinced of because yet you know those from whom you've learned it and how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. A question for you and me. Are you and I thoroughly equipped for every good work? That's what God's word does for us. Are we instruments that God can use in every situation to demonstrate his power? Uh, the word prepares us for that. So it's God's word that renews our minds and transforms who we are so that we can reflect Christ's character and his behavior. Here's some practical tips uh, to participate with God in our own transformation as he, uh, as he renews our minds and transforms our, our behavior. And I, I know that I'm speaking to a broad spectrum of people. A number of you have been following Jesus for many years and, and you spend time with God faithfully uh, every day. But for those who don't yet, uh, let me challenge you uh, to set aside time uh, daily to, to read the Bible and engage with God in prayer. And, and this, is, this is what I'd suggest. Begin by asking God to open your heart 
and teach you uh, through his word. And, uh, and then read a chapter and, and jot a couple notes in a notebook briefly about what God impressed on your heart. It was a word of encouragement, a correction, uh, something that you needed to know uh, for a decision you needed to make. Uh, God will speak to you through his word and, and through prayer. And then another suggestion is work at memorizing and meditating on key scripture passages. God's word is living and powerful, and there, there is no more um, effective way to uh, internalize God's word than by memorizing and meditating on that word. I've, in, I've included a tip about uh, an app called Verse Locker. You can get on your phone. Verse Locker, it's called. It's in your notes. Uh, it helps you to uh, review and to store those scripture uh, verses that you're memorizing. And then another suggestion is uh, join a small group if you're not part of one. Join a small group or the men's or, or women's Bible study and, uh, and we sharpen each other as we're learning together and, and talking about what God is teaching us. Here's a final encouragement from the, the writer of Hebrews. Uh, Paul, uh, excuse me, not Paul, the writer of Hebrews uh, says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sing and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Folks, life is short. Life is short. Let's commit ourselves to allowing God to save us not just once, but every day as we draw closer to Jesus through the life-transforming power of God's Word. Let's pray, shall we? Dear Father, we thank you for your Word. And uh, Lord, we thank you for the way your Holy Spirit uses uh, your Word to transform us, to remodel us from the inside out. And we, we pray that, uh, that you'll give us a passion uh, to follow Jesus uh, and to honor you in, in every way, with every aspect of our lives. Lord, we pray that uh, your Holy Spirit will use God's word to transform us so that we reflect the character of Christ, so that other people will be drawn into relationship with you because of what they see in us. And we pray all these things in the powerful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for your time this morning. Have a great week, folks.